Okay, I'm really sorry to take like however long that was. But some, th- some things are just really, really important. And can I just encourage you that <laughs> if you just found that really boring, man, I so understand because I've so been there. I have so been there. Um, where something's going on and I don't feel a part of it. I feel like there's this random person up the front that's just kind of going with something and doing something and I'm, I'm not able to be a part of it. I've so been there in so many different circumstances. But there's something that God wants to teach this house about unity. And there's something that happens when together, unified, here's Jesus in his high priestly prayer. John chapter 17. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me. He's talking about the disciples. I do not ask just for the disciples alone, but those who will believe in me, Christ, through the disciples' word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. He's saying, I pray that this would be one to the extent to the oneness of the Trinity. That's the example he gives us, that they may be one as you are in me and I am in you, says Christ to Father. He then says, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. God gives us his glory so that we can be one. This, this oneness that is comparable to the, the fusing of the Trinity. The, the, the fact that the Spirit glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father, and the Father upholds the Son. There's this incredible, I never look at myself, I look at the other within the Trinity. And there's something that God wants to teach this house about being one. Because when we are one, it is irresistible to Him because it's His nature. It's the very being of who he is. He cannot separate himself from oneness. And so if we can learn to be one, truly one, together, what will happen here will be phenomenal because our oneness will manifest in the spirit and the outpouring of God because he can't hold himself away from it because it's irresistible to him. And so if you just found that really boring, man, I understand. And I say, I'm so, I've been there but ask God to lead you down a journey of why. Because in our oneness, something like this, when we're walking in the full revelation, and this is not a criticism if you were bored, I'm not, I'm not having a go at you because I've been there. But when this happens, it should be one of the most exciting things possible when we see words go from God go out over people that brings freedom. It should be so exciting. And so that's not condemnation. If it's not exciting for you, please don't, don't go, oh, I'm bad. No, 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 no. It's just that God wants to bring you into a new level of revelation about something really, really special in his body. Okay? What time do I need to stop? (laughs) The front row says you're done. And you can leave right now because my daddy's the king. (laughs) Um, I just want to honour kids' church because kids' church is really hard. What what time do we normally finish? Sorry? 20 minutes? Okay. Um, 
I want to talk to you a bit about sonship. This isn't what I really wanted to talk to you about, but I don't think we'll get there. A son knows that sonship is a gift that cannot be revoked and therefore works out of love, works out of love to acknowledge an unconditional blessing. A slave is stuck in the turmoil of knowing that they have to work to maintain the relationship and the blessing. A slave's in the house because there's a job to do. A son's in the house because he's been born. Or he's been born again. Um, I want to speak to you, woman, if you find the whole area of sonship hard to receive, I get that. But you might have picked it up when I was praying for some people. There's blessing and revelation attached to being a firstborn son or to being to the gift of sonship, which is inclusive to woman. That there isn't when you speak about a daughter. It's like for guys. I've asked Bex and Mal and a few others, um, and we still have to do it, but I've asked them to lay their hands on me and impart to me um, revelation of what it is to be a bride. So woman, you, you have to learn about sonship, and guys, we have to receive what it is to be the bride of Christ. So there's this... Um, this really random thing within us that doesn't match our flesh but starts to do something in our spirit. Um, so guys, if, if you struggle with the concept of being the bride of Christ, like Mel got up on Sunday night a few weeks ago and she started, I think she read out of Song of Solomon and she started to read it and it sparked in my heart in a really special way that's never sparked before as, as she was reading these words about a lover, a husband and it started to spark within me but I recognise that she carries revelation of a bride that I do not. Probably partially because she's been a bride. Kirk pursued her. She knows what it is to be pursued. I pursued Bex. Bex didn't pursue me. I had to work really, 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 really hard. (laughs) It was not love at first sight for both of us. It was for one of us. And there was a pursuit. And so Bex and Mal carry revelation of what it is to be pursued as a bride. Hello. Um... They carry this revelation that us guys, we don't have. And so guys, can I, yeah, can I, as this, this congregation continues to journey down the bride of Christ, find a woman who was pursued. Find a woman who knows what it is to be a bride. Ask them to lay their hands on you and impart the spirit of a bride because we will be the bride of Christ. And so woman, when I speak about sonship, I speak about it completely inclusively to you. But I don't want to call it being sons and daughters because I think if we do that, you miss out. And if it's weird and random for you, find a guy who has revelation of sonship. Find a firstborn son. Are there any firstborn sons here tonight? This morning? Can you stand up if you're a firstborn son? Ladies, look around. Whole bunch of firstborn sons. Doesn't matter how old you stand up, Preston. Doesn't matter how old you are, buddy. It's not something that you... This is the thing. It's not something that you have to understand. It's something that you just give. And so ladies, look around. Here are some firstborn sons. If you don't, guys, if you don't understand sonship, go to one of these guys after the service and say, will you just lay your hands on me and say, I impart a blessing of sonship. That's all they have to do. And I believe God will start to do something special. Thank you, men. You look lovely. Okay. A slave's in the house because there's a job to do. A son's in the house because he's been born again. Jesus says to um, Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you have to be born of what? Of water and the Spirit. Um, to see to enter the kingdom of God. There's another scripture which says, I, I don't know where, um, when Paul is talking about the elementary teachings of faith. Um, is, it a, is it a feat? Does anyone know? He says, let us not go back to the elementary teachings of baptisms, Hebrews, thank you, um, of baptisms, so on and so forth. And he actually uses the word baptisms, plural. 
the baptisms. Let us not go back to baptisms. The baptisms of water and the baptisms of the Spirit. When you get baptised, what happens is your flesh dies and you get raised to a new life and that's the gift of sonship. Your flesh dies and in that transaction of the waters of baptism, you get born again to a different father. See, I, I have an incredible um, mother. My dad died when I was a little boy. I have a phenomenal mama, she, mama. She's, um, she's an incredible godly woman. Like whenever I talk with her, she's not listening to this, she's listening to this. And we have these phenomenal conversations where she just receives stuff and gives stuff that doesn't have to be transacted like this. She just has intimacy with God and her spirit tunes into my spirit and what God's doing. So she's an amazing mother. She's given and sacrificed. And some of you will have heard me talk about her in the past. You know, just the... the I don't, there's no word that's worthy of it. What she had to do to raise us loved. There's no word that's worthy that could describe the price that she has paid. So she's a phenomenal mother. But when I died in baptism and I got raised to life, she's actually now more my sister in Christ than she is my mother. It's not that I disown her as my mother, it's that I've come under a new father. And so God is actually more my father than more my parent than my mama's. And so that's what happens in the, the, the waters of baptism. The baptism of the Spirit is a power infilling that empowers us to live from the kingdom to earth. So live from a slave's in the house because there's a job to do, a son's in the house because he's been born. We all have to learn how to live from our new house. Like discipleship is... Um, we talk about discipleship. Like, okay, so let's, let's say Johnny's growing up and he's an angry little boy. He's, I think I was 12 when I went to first see a counsellor for anger and I was really, really angry. And I knew that anger was not good. I knew that peace and love and joy and patience and gentleness were good and that was the kingdom of God. But I was over here. And what happened is people tried to do everything they possibly could to move me from here along this process of discipleship so that I could get closer to the kingdom of God. And they gave me all these strategies, like I had wonderful counsellors who did lots of things, like one counsellor gave me a Walkman and my mum bought me a favourite tape and when I got angry I was supposed to get my Walkman and shut myself away and listen to the music um, until I felt happy and then I was supposed to leave my room which was a great strategy to get me from anger to a little bit closer to joy. problem was one day when I was angry, um, I went into my room and I put the Walkman on and the song that I didn't want came on and so I unplugged it and hurled it across the room. <laughs> it hit like a concrete thing and just shattered. <laughs> so people are trying to take me along the journey to get closer to the kingdom of God. That's not how Jesus did it. He encountered a person stuck in anger and he gave them revelation of the kingdom of God, the house of Father. And then he said, discipleship is the process of learning to live from the house of your Father back to earth. Discipleship is of this order. It's not a this order. Does that make sense? So if you do it this way, you're struggling in the flesh. If you try and walk towards the kingdom of God by strategies or ways of beating your flesh into submission, you're putting your own strength to bear. When I put my strength to bear, who does it glorify? Me. 
When God gives me revelation of the kingdom and somehow supernaturally teaches me how to live from his house to earth, as a son to earth, who does it glorify? Him. Because it's so far beyond what I can do. And so that's the process of discipleship. Does that make sense? And so many of us are stuck in this, this slave mentality where we're in the house because there's a job to do. And sometimes the job is external to ourselves and sometimes the job is not. Sometimes the job is internal. We feel like there's this thing we have to work on. But this is the thing about a son. A son knows that whether you raise the dead or take a nap, the pay's the same. Whether you raise the dead and do phenomenal things for God or you go and lie down in your bedroom, you're still a son. Now, I believe that a son that truly loves him will put their hand to the plough because they see the heart of Father for all humanity. But it doesn't define you. It doesn't, doesn't say who you are. A slave is disposable. A son is permanent. <laughs> I turned 30 uh, last year. Um, <laughs> and we came home from Africa. Um, and I'm living with my in-laws. Success. Put me on the cover of time. <laughs> 30 and living with my in-laws. I love it. It's so fun. It's been a really, really special time for us. But here's the thing. A son's permanent. I'm not even their blood son. I've been received as a son and I've taken the position of a son. They, when mum talks about us, she's like, yeah, Bex and Johnny are our boomerang kids. You know, we throw them out with power and grace and they just go... <laughs> and we find them back on our doorstep. Again, <laughs> they're our... <laughs> kids. They're our boomerang kids. A slave is permanent. If you work as a slave in the kingdom of God, if you don't have a revelation of sonship, you are, sorry, you are temporary. A slave is temporary. A son is permanent. No matter how hard Bex's parents and my mum tries to get rid of us, they never will. <laughs> and there will be a transaction of blessing that goes both ways. But a slave is temporary. A son is permanent. A slave applies for a position. A son receives identity. A slave's identity is set by their tasks. A son's identity is defined by their father's identity. A slave operates under control. A son lives under freedom. Some of you have had parents who have, um, with the best possible heart, tried to control you. And that's not how God works. It's not how he works. Um, Bubba, where's the scripture about the role of the Spirit? John... Oh, that's right, I've got it. I'm on the same page. John 16. Thank you, darling. <laughs> she knows it normally. Um, this is Jesus speaking about the Holy Spirit. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So let's just break this down. When he comes, he will convict because of sin, because they do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit convicts people of sin who do not believe in Christ. Do you believe in Christ? I do not believe that the Holy Spirit will ever convict you of sin. Just stay with me. Don't shut off here and go, what's he saying? 
Because it says that he will convict the world of sin because they do not believe in me. Then he says concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. In other words, the believer who I'm with, he's speaking to the disciples, I will conv- the Spirit will convict you of righteousness, right standing before God. When you get convicted of righteousness, it does highlight your sin. But it's not a conviction of sin. It's a conviction of right standing before God and therefore what I've been invited to and what in His power I can live in. And so I don't live under the, the guilt of sin. I live under the conviction that I am righteous before God. I am right standing. And so whenever I hear someone say, I just felt so convicted of my sin by the Holy Spirit, sometimes I say it, sometimes I don't. But what instantly goes off in me is that's the voice of the enemy. There may well be that sin in your life that needs dealing with, but the enemy will try and highlight the sin to make you try and work on the sin like a slave instead of convict you of righteousness, which means you start to receive the power of Father to deal with the sin because you're a son. I will convict you of righteousness. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this evil world has been judged, Satan gets convicted of judgment. The world concerning sin, us as believers concerning righteousness, and Satan concerning judgment. And so, a son truly lives under freedom, because the conviction is a freedom. Um, Ephesians... Uh, paraphrase. Um, no, I won't. I'll find it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul to the Ephesian church. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. He's calling the Ephesian church to righteousness. He's saying the calling with which you have received, walk it out. A, son, a slave operates under control, a son lives under freedom. It's the most phenomenal freedom you've ever experienced in your life. To go, do you know what, God? Whether I work your power out, whether you work your power out through me in the world, or I just sit around and play PlayStation, I'm still a son. Now, there will be rewards and truth that I will enter into if I allow him to, to, to pour his power into me and out of me, but I'm still a son. That's freedom that allows you to choose what you do and what you don't do. What happens when you're allowed to choose what you do and you don't do? Your heart gets revealed. What does God want to do? He wants to give us complete freedom so that he can reveal our hearts to ourselves. And it's only under freedom that he can do that. If it's control, we don't get to know our heart. We just get to know the rules. This is something that we do all the time. We take a principle of God and we turn it into a law so that we can operate under law. Why? Because law means we do not need intimacy. There are principles. Let me give you an example. He who finds a good wife finds a good thing. Scripture. Whatever you do, don't get married. Scripture. It's both. There's these... He who finds a good wife finds a good thing. Get married. It's awesome. Paul's like, don't do it. Whatever you do, do not get married. They're both truth. What we want to do is we want to find one of these principles and make it law. Because in the, in the turmoil of the principles, we have to stay intimate. Because we have to be able to hear from God whether that principle applies, or this principle applies, or if it's anything and everything in the middle. 
Does that make sense? And so we try and take these principles and turn them into laws because they negate the need for intimacy. It's what the Israelites did. They were under prophets in the Old Testament. What do prophets do? Steward intimacy with God. And what did they say? Give us a king. What does a king do? A king sets law. It's their nature and it's our nature to ask for law. Because under law, I can still govern myself. Under intimacy, I'm governed by him. And I truly have to give up the king seat of my own life. A slave gives honour or worship because of duty. A son gives worship because of adoration. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 14, um, God makes this incredible statement. He says, return, O faithless sons. He acknowledges that the people have walked away. Bad people. He acknowledges that they're living in faithlessness. Bad people. But what does he call them? Sons. God will always speak to you like that. He will always say, stop doing that, my son. Because he will never take away sonship. That's, that's the message of the prodigal son. What did the prodigal son say? Does anyone know where it is? Gospel somewhere. Google it, you'll find it. The prodigal son. A son says to a father, I want everything you can give me now. I don't want to wait for my inheritance. And he goes away and he squanders it. And he lives a high life and he wastes all the money and he finds himself begging and desperate. No money, no food. And he says, I will go back to my father's house and I will tell him that I am no longer worthy to be a son. No longer worthy. But I will ask him to treat me as a slave, as a hired hand. And that I might have lodging and food on his property but I will relinquish my sonship because of what I have done. What does, the, what does the father do? He sees the son coming a long way off and he runs out and he puts a cloak on him and he prepares a feast. And what does he do? He reestablishes sonship. He reaffirms sonship. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter how bad your sin is. You can never lose being a son. That's an incredible revelation that God will always affirm my sonship. In Luke chapter 3 and 4, um, you get this incredible conversation, Many of you, most of you will probably know it, between Satan and Jesus. And, um, in Luke chapter 3, God says over Christ when he's baptised, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In Luke chapter 4, Satan comes to Jesus and he uses God's words to try and, um, to try and tempt Jesus. We learn something from both what Satan said and what he didn't say. Satan came to Jesus and he said, if you are the son of God, do this. If you are the son of God, do that. In other words, I'm probing to see if there's a vulnerability in your sonship. That's all I'm doing. I know you can do this. This is well within your grasp. You can turn the stones into bread. You can do whatever you want. I know that that's within your grasp. But what I'm doing is I'm probing your armour to see whether there's any hole in your sonship that I can exploit. He's asking if you are a son of God. And I believe Satan does that to us the whole time. And we just need to be able to go, (laughs) what do you mean if I am a son of God? I am a son of God. Next. And that's what Christ did. He didn't get sucked into trying to perform to justify his sonship because he knew that his sonship was, he couldn't justify it. It was a gift. So we learn from what Satan did say, but what did he leave out? What What did God say over Christ? This is my beloved son. This is my loved son. 
Satan didn't come and say, if you are the beloved son of Christ. He just said, if you are the son of, sorry, if you are the beloved son of God. He said, if you are the son of God, he left out loved. He can never manipulate love. And so for us, there's this journey of being able to go, I'm a son. Not only am I a son, I'm a loved son. And Satan, he just knew. He knew that he knew that he knew that as soon as he said, beloved son, he'd lost. It was all over. And so there's this incredible journey for each one of us where we come into sonship and where we come into sonship where we know that we're loved. I'm going to finish there. Um, Can I have four minutes? Because I I think this is important. I felt like this was a message for, um, for us. The fastest way to cheapen something is to make it popular or make it accessible. Diamonds are precious because they're not accessible to everyone. They're not accessible to most people. And the fastest way you could cheapen the value of a diamond is to make it accessible to everyone. Put a price tag on it that allows everybody to buy a two-carat diamond for a buck. All of a sudden, diamonds would have no value. I went um, to my brother-in-law's stag weekend, and we went over to... Castle Point and um, they went fishing on a big boat and they took some dive gear and they got about 37 crayfish and so we spent the weekend, weekend eating crayfish um, if you know I think they're about I don't know 80 to 100 bucks just to buy a crayfish that size from the supermarket and we were just like chowing into crayfish and we're sitting around the table and, and I just said I wonder if shaved ham was like a hundred bucks for a slice if we'd be sitting around eating shaved ham instead of crayfish. We probably would. Because if we cheapened crayfish by making crayfish a buck and made shaved ham a hundred bucks to buy a slice, everybody would be like, oh, shaved ham. (laughs) Make sense? We define a value according to a price. And so the fastest way to cheapen anything is to make it popular or accessible for everybody. And I really feel like God wants to say to us that, that, that we, have, we have cheapened him. That in trying to make him accessible and relevant to a world, we have stripped him of his value. Because this is the thing, my Jesus is actually worth something. He's actually worth everything. And when I look at our nation in New Zealand, you can take this or leave this. I'm not saying thus saith the Lord. I'm saying that this is a sense that I get. I believe that God's hand has been on our nation. I believe since the founding of New Zealand when the Māori Order came and, and, and the people were established. Like if you start to look at the history of our nation, I'm really blessed that, that Bex has done a degree in Māori development and social policy and her heart beats for the Māori people. And it's like there's this thing that God's put within her that hasn't yet really come out, but one day it will and it'll be phenomenal. But she shared all this stuff with me about the Māori people that just blows my mind. Things like when missionaries first came over to New Zealand and came to the Māori people and started telling them about Jesus, they said, oh yeah, we know the guy that hung on a tree for all all creation. We know that man, we just didn't know his name was Jesus. And the missionaries found that the Māori people already knew Christ. They just mixed him up with a few other things. That the whole Māori system of tapu and noa is like clean and unclean. 
if you look at Māori culture and, and the way that they lived, it so resembles the book of Leviticus, it's not funny. Levitical law. It's like this, this nation right from day one has been stewarded. God has stewarded us, stewarded us into him. And I believe what he's done is, over the last year and a half, and you can take this or leave this, his hands that have been on New Zealand protecting us from ourselves, he's gone and he's lifted his hands. And I don't know whether you believe that, but I look at Christchurch, I look at Pike River, I look at Balloon Tragedy, I look at the summer of death that everyone's called, and I'm like, I don't remember a summer like this. I don't remember a year like this. There may have been in past, I don't know. But it's not even based on the evidence of what I see, it's just a sense I get within my spirit. Because God said this, he said, I will build my church. And then the commission that he gave us was you go and disciple nations. You go and make disciples of all nations. He didn't say make disciples in nations. He said make a disciple of a nation. In other words, disciple nations. Direct a nation into me. And what do we do? We spend all our time building the church or the institution of the church instead of allowing God to build the church and build the church. And we ask him to disciple the nation. There was a funny story, I don't know if you've heard it or not, but I read it in the paper, true story. Um, a strip club, a guy bought a building just around the corner from a Baptist church in the States and he opened a strip club there. And the Baptist church got together and had a prayer meeting that night and asked God to, one of the prayers was, God, that you would destroy the building. We don't want this in our city. That night, a lightning strike hit the building, true story, burned the thing to the ground. The strip club owner sued the Baptist church <laughs> for destruction of property. The Baptist church, in their opening submission to the judge, said there is absolutely no proof that we had anything to do with what happened. And the judge <laughs> summed up the first day's proceedings by scratching his head and saying, I don't know what to do with this because it appears like we have a strip club owner that believes in the power of God and a church who doesn't. <laughs> Where do we go from here? <laughs> I don't have an opinion on whether the prayer literally caused a lightning bolt to, you know, I'll leave you to figure that one out yourself with God. But what I do know, what I know, that I know, that I know, that I know, God is inviting us to lead our nation. The words, your kingdom come. The word kingdom in Greek is basileia, and it literally means your royal power come. We can't take cities for God because they're already his. Psalm 24, I was talking with Alex last night. Thank you for chatting with me because this is where this came from. Psalm 24 says that the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. So we can't take cities for God, they're already his. He says somewhere else, just ask of me, Psalm 2, I think, or Psalm 3, just ask of me and I will give you the earth as the end, sorry, the end of the earth as your possession. I will give you nations as your inheritance. He can't give something that isn't already his. New Zealand belongs to God. The world belongs to God. The city of Wellington is under God's rule, a ship. But like any governmental authority, like, so just let me backtrack. If we look at New Zealand in a, in a structural capacity, New Zealand is under the control of the government, yeah? The government sets laws and policies, etc. But the government doesn't have enough power to exercise their dominion throughout all the land to enforce the policy of the government. So the government says, no, you can't take drugs, no, you can't murder, no, you can't steal. But those things all happen because there's not enough power 
that the government doesn't have enough money or resource to create a power structure where they can enforce their will. If you apply that to God, New Zealand is God's. The Bible, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So he's not lacking in power. What he is lacking in is a person that will be discipled because only one who has been discipled can disciple nations. You can't disciple a nation if you haven't been discipled yourself. And we have the struggle of we pray your kingdom come and we love the stories of your kingdom come. We love them, they're precious. But over the last three years God has taken me down a journey of going your kingdom come because he doesn't want me to stand before him and say to him, but Lord, Lord, didn't I cast out demons? Didn't I heal the sick in your name? And him say, be gone from me because I never knew you, because I never invited his kingdom to come first and foremost here. And I believe passionately that God, once again, take this or leave this, I'm not saying thus saith the Lord, but I believe the earthquakes in Christchurch would stop immediately if a church repented. If you and I repented because we've cheapened him, because we've never encountered his glory, we don't know what he's worth. And so I just want to give you an opportunity if you want to and I don't want the musicians to come. Maybe we'll just have a minute or two. But I want to give you an opportunity to repent. Because every great move of God starts with repentance. And repentance moves to sacrifice. There's that cool song. Um, oh, lost the words. something about you like the fire, I'll be the sacrifice. And the struggle for us is every time God lights a fire because of our repentance, it's the nature of fire to go out. We don't know how to steward what he's done. And I really believe that God has invited the rock to be a part of the discipling of New Zealand. There is an incredible biblical precedent for men and women to influence governmental policy. There's an incredible biblical evidence for men and women to stand before rulers and authorities and influence with the kingdom of God. I don't believe God wants to set up a literal kingdom on earth yet. He will. But your kingdom come is not about the establishment of a governmental party that we would rule the earth. Your kingdom come is that we would influence government policy and we would influence teachers and we would influence mums and we would influence dads and we would influence Plunkett and we would influence all these things. We would disciple a nation because we ourselves have been discipled. And so once again, if it's not burning on your heart, don't respond. It's not a, it's not a call to go, hey, everybody needs to respond to this because I'm only interested in what God's doing in you and I want to bless what he's doing in you. And so if he's not doing this, I'm really sorry for taking up 40 minutes of your time. <laughs> but if this resonates in your heart, that God is inviting us he has taken his hand, he's lifted his hand above the nation of New Zealand to give us an opportunity to be what he's invited us to be. If that resonates within your spirit and you know that you have not seen the glory of God to the extent where you can steward well the glory of God, I want to give you an opportunity to repent. And you can do it however you want. 
If you want to come up the front, come up the front. If you want to leave and go home and get on your face for the rest of the afternoon and pour out your heart to God, do that. It doesn't have to look like anything. I'm interested in this, and so is he. So I'm going to give us a minute. However you want to repent, if you feel led to, please do. Um, and then we'll call it, call it a day. We love you guys very, very much. You are very precious to us. I'm sorry that we haven't been around more. We had hoped that coming back to New Zealand we would be um, very present here. And it hasn't quite worked out like that um, because of what we feel he's leading us to. But please know that we love you. Um, if any of you would like to catch up with us, the office here has our details. And, and our heart really burns for you and, and for the rock. Um, you are precious to us. So thank you for having us. And so now if you want to take a minute to repent, however it looks, bless you.